listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. Joining me again today is my co-host, Cindy Johnson, Operations Manager of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hello, Cindy. Hello, Jeremy. This is episode 76 of Lighthearted, slated for August 17th, 2020. On August 17th, 1945, the novella Animal Farm by George Orwell was published. And on August 17th, 2008, the American swimmer Michael Phelps became the first person to win eight gold medals at one Olympic Games. Born on this date in 1786 was the American folk hero, frontiersman, soldier, and politician Davy Crockett. He once said, quote, I would rather be politically dead than hypocritically immortalized, unquote. And also, he killed him a bar when he was only three. Listeners of a certain age, I think, will know what I'm talking about. Uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're not of a certain age yet. So you, ah, okay. I'll just say briefly, uh, Fess Parker played uh, Davy Crockett in a TV series in the 1950s. And the theme song, The Ballad of Davy Crockett, was a huge, huge hit. And there's a line in it, he killed him a bar, meaning bear, when he was only three. Killed him a bar when he was only three. Aha! But it's one of those things where I just read recently that a lot of people, when they heard it, thought it was saying he was killed in a bar when he was only three. Oh, boy. <laughs> even I, even um, that tune rings a bell for me, too. Okay, good. It does. Not the lyrics, but the tune. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna sing it. I think we better stop there. So, on today's episode of Lighthearted, we're going to escape the summer heat and head up to Alaska. A few episodes ago, we talked to Sue York of the group that's working to restore the Eldred Rock Lighthouse in Alaska. But today, we're going to talk about a lighthouse that no longer exists. And in fact, I think this is the first time on this podcast we're focusing on a lost lighthouse. Cindy, please help tell our listeners about the Scotch Cap Lighthouse and our guest, Peter Kaufman. Sure, Jeremy. The Aleutian Islands, a chain of 14 large volcanic islands and 55 smaller islands, form a dividing line between the Bering Sea to the north and the Pacific Ocean to the south. Most are part of Alaska, but some belong to Russia. Scotch Cap Lighthouse is at the southwest corner of Unimac Island, which is the largest of the Aleutians at 1,571 square miles, a little bigger than the state of Rhode Island. It's also the ninth largest island in the United States. The light station established there in 1903 was the first station established on Alaska's outside coast. It was on the Pacific side of Unimac Pass, the main passage through the Aleutians into the Bering Sea. The original lighthouse building consisted of an octagonal wooden tower, 45 feet high, with its light 90 feet above mean high water. Wrecks near the station were common. In 1909, the cannery supply ship Columbia wrecked nearby, and 194 crewmen were guests of the lightkeepers for two weeks before a relief vessel was able to remove them. In 1930, a Japanese freighter beached nearby in a snowstorm, and in 1942, a Russian freighter was wrecked near the station. Sixty survivors spent several weeks with the keepers, unable to leave until rough seas subsided. The area was considered one of the foggiest in the world. Around 1930, a radio beacon was established on a bluff above the light station. The signal from the beacon enabled mariners to take a bearing 100 miles or more before they reached Unimac Pass. 
1940, a new concrete reinforced lighthouse and combined fog signal building replaced the original structure. The new 60-foot tall lighthouse appeared to be impervious to the elements. It was staffed by five resident Coast Guard keepers. On April 1, 1946, a massive earthquake struck the North Pacific, spawning a tsunami that traveled north to the Aleutian Islands. At the radio beacon station, operator Hoban Sanford reported feeling the strong earthquake. There was no damage in the building other than items falling from shelves. Sanford spoke with the officer in charge at the lighthouse, Anthony Petit, who said he was, quote, plenty scared, unquote. Two more strong earthquakes followed. Then Sanford heard a, quote, terrible roaring sound, unquote, and a heavy blow against the side of the radio beacon building. When he went outside and surveyed the damage, Sanford found that the lighthouse had been completely destroyed. Petit and the other four Coast Guard keepers were gone. Remains of the men, found later, were buried about 300 yards east of the lighthouse site. In 1950, the lighthouse was replaced by a fog signal building with a skeletal light tower mounted on top. In 1999, one of the Coast Guard's fleet of 14 keeper-class coastal buoy tenders, the cutter Anthony Petit, named for the officer in charge at Scotch Camp who lost his life in the 1946 tsunami, was launched. The cutter is based in Ketchikan, Alaska. Our guest today, Peter Kaufman, was born in Cleveland, Ohio. After college, he spent more than a year in Alaska, working in several canneries on Kodiak Island. He then graduated from Penn State with an MA in history. After some time in New York City, Kaufman returned to Ohio and wrote a novel about his experiences on Kodiak Island. The book, entitled Barometer's Shadow, was published in 2005. Peter's second book, Skull in the Ashes, published in 2013, was a culmination of six years of research and writing. For the past two and a half years, he's been working on researching and writing about the 1946 disaster that destroyed the Scotch Cap Lighthouse, killing five Coast Guardsmen. I had the opportunity to speak with Peter Kaufman in late July. Let's listen to that conversation now. I am with Peter Kaufman today, and Peter, how are things in Cincinnati? Good. Uh, nice and hot, uh, Jeremy. A pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's the same here in Portsmouth. It's about 96 today. So, Peter, starting out here, I know you've spent a lot of time in Alaska, and your writing keeps kind of taking you back there to Alaska. What is uh, so interesting about Alaska to you? Well, uh, ever since I lived there in the 1970s, I've been drawn to Alaska. Uh, the place is intriguing to me. It's a lot like an onion uh, from a historical standpoint. There are so many different layers to get into. There's the Native Americans who, of course, are still there. The Russians who operated a fur trading empire in the 1700s. Then uh, the United States bought Alaska from the Russians in 1867. So there's an awful lot of history, and I, I love history. Secondly, there's the raw power of the place. Alaska is uh, still very much a wilderness and seems to be changing on a regular basis. So I just enjoy it a lot, and it has a special fascination for me. It always has. Your first book, Barometer's Shadow, was an, a novel that was partly based in your own experiences in Alaska. And your second book, Skull in the Ashes, was a true crime story. It sounds extremely interesting. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about that? Does that also involve Alaska? It does. Uh, it is a true crime story, uh, a true story that actually happened in which a murderer fled to the Klondike uh, just when the gold rush was starting. He hoped to lose himself 
among the thousands and thousands of prospectors who were making their way to Dawson. But what he didn't know was that there was a Pinkerton man on his trail uh, trying to find him. And uh, I really enjoyed this book because I loved doing the research on the trip down the Yukon River, which was 600 miles. First, they had to build their boats and go through all the rapids. And then once the detective got to Dawson, he had to look among the thousands and thousands of prospectors to find his man. So, yes, I really enjoyed uh, working on that book. Mm, sounds like the a good basis for a movie, possibly. Yes, yes. in fact, uh, I was approached for uh, doing a movie on it, and I'm working on the script as we speak. So uh, ah. yes, uh, one uh, person told me that um, she thought that Burt Lancaster would make a good choice for the detective, but I had to explain to her, her that Burt was no longer with us. <laughs> it's been a few years, yeah. It's been a few years, but yes, uh, I think it would make a good movie. Uh-huh. Well, I'll be looking for that. So why did you decide to write a book about the Scotch Cap Lighthouse in the 1946 tsunami? Well, there have been a number of different articles and accounts on the tsunami, but uh, I feel the complete story has never been told uh, to get into all the different aspects of uh, what occurred, and especially the five men who died, what their lives were like and who they really were, I thought was a, a very compelling narrative, a good story to tell. Let me ask you a real basic question. I, I don't, and I don't know the answer to this. Where did the name Scotch Cap come from, anyway? Yes, Alaskan names, always interesting. Um, there are Alaska towns named Chicken, um, Coldfoot, Dead Horse. They all have interesting names, and Scotch Cap is probably one of them. Uh, it got its name in about 1890, and there is a pinnacle, a rock outcropping uh, that's there that resembles a Scotch cap. And a Scotch cap has got a visor and kind of a high front piece, usually with a little uh, uh, ball on top. It's a little bit similar to the, to the cap that uh, John Lennon used to wear when he was in this uh, obscure group called the Beatles, which, he, which you may have heard of. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, uh, yes, uh, that's how it got its name, Scotch cap. Ah, okay. And Peter, before we talk about the tsunami, maybe you could uh, say a, a little bit about the, the remote nature of uh, Unimac Island and, and what life was like there for the, the men who were stationed there. Yes, it was uh, primitive at best. Uh, having lived in Alaska, I know the importance of receiving uh, mail from the outside world. And the mail to Unimac was spotty. Uh, boats had a hard time landing there because the uh, surf was so intense. And uh, planes would drop mail on an occasional basis. Sometimes it would be weeks and weeks before the men would get mail. And when a plane flew over, uh, in many cases, it would just take, throw the sacks out of the plane, and they would hit the tundra, and the sacks would break open, and the mail would go all over. And the men would scurry around trying to pick up the mail and uh, collect it. The food was relatively primitive, too. Uh, but uh, mainly, it was uh, the remoteness. You know, you're staying in the Aleutians is, there's a woman behind every tree in the Aleutians. Of course, there are no trees in the Aleutians and very, very few women. So it was a remote uh, existence for the men to be sure. So let's talk about the tsunami. Uh, what exactly caused the, the 1946 tsunami? There's been a lot of debate over the years as to what the actual cause was, but the uh, general consensus now is that it was caused by a massive, slow-moving underwater earthquake. And this earthquake was tremendously strong. It was about 8.5 on the Richter scale, which made it one of the largest recorded earthquakes in history. 
Um, I should mention that back then, these were referred to as tidal waves, which we no longer call them that. It's not accurate. And they are instead now called tsunami. And tsunami is a Japanese word that means harbor wave. And that's much more uh, definitive because the harbor waves are what the tsunamis are famous for when they go over the seawall and go into the harbor. Can you describe how large and widespread the tsunami was? I understand that it had an effect on places other than Alaska. Oh, yes, it did. Uh, first, the tsunami was, uh, was very tall. It was about 137 feet high, and the one that leveled the lighthouse at Scotch Cap. And Scotch Cap was about 90 feet above sea level, so it was an amazingly powerful wave that immediately destroyed it. But this tsunami actually was comprised of two parts, the near-field tsunami that hit Scotch Cap and the Farfield one. And the Farfield one raced down the Pacific at about 300 miles an hour and hit Hawaii and then Chile and even touched Antarctica. So it was a, a very strong wave that traveled a long distance. And how much damage did it do? Obviously, it, it uh, was very tragic what happened at the lighthouse, but how much, other than that, how much damage did it do? Uh, the most damage that it did was in Hawaii. There was a coastal city in Hawaii named Hilo, and uh, it did significant damage there. It killed about 160 people and caused about $26 million in damages, and this is in 1946 dollars. So it caused quite a bit of widespread damage, mainly in Hawaii, not so much in the other countries as it traveled south. And mm-hmm. uh, there is some, some footage that has survived that's, that's really chilling of people in Hawaii fleeing this tsunami and watching it come in. And of course, uh, before the tsunami hit Hawaii, it looked like the tide had gone out. So a lot of people were out at what they thought was low tide, looking for shells and things like that. And of course, they had no chance when the tsunami roared in. Right. I believe uh, that's actually on YouTube. I, I, I found is. that. Yeah. As you can see it there. Uh-huh. It's true. So if people do a search on YouTube for 1946 tsunami, I believe they can find that. Yeah. And I should mention also that there's some animated, I think there's some animated uh, versions of the tsunami uh, on YouTube as well. You can easily find it on the web and see computer modeling of, of how it went and where it traveled uh, through the Pacific. Did anyone at the light station or anywhere uh, in the, that area, the Aleutian Islands, have any warning that the tsunami was coming? Uh, no, um, there weren't any systems in place at that time for, um, for uh, tsunami detection or early warning, things like that. So no one really had any idea that this was coming. And did the disaster lead to any changes in uh, tsunami warning yes, systems? Yes, absolutely. Uh, this, this tsunami led to the development of a tsunami warning system in 1948, two years later, that's still in use in Hawaii. It tracks tsunamis uh, in the, around the Hawaii area and in other parts of the world. Um, an interesting sidelight is this warning system is, is quite effective, but it's by no means foolproof. In uh, January of this year, there was a tsunami that was supposed to be headed for Kodiak, where I lived in the 1970s. The people there got the warning at one o'clock in the morning, they piled out of their houses, many of them in their pajamas, got in their trucks and Jeeps and drove up Pillar Mountain, which overlooks Kodiak, and waited for the tsunami to come in. And when it finally hit, it was about eight inches in height. So uh, it's, it, they were right in predicting it, but they still have a ways to go in, in seeing what the ferocity of the tsunamis are. Right. Well, better safe than sorry, I guess. Sure, 
Sure. Yeah. So at Scotchcap, the, the lighthouse, the Scotchcap lighthouse had just been rebuilt a few years before the disaster in 1940, and it was made of steel reinforced concrete. Uh, did they have any idea that a natural disaster like that could happen there? And was that, uh, did they have that in mind when they rebuilt the lighthouse? That, in that's a really good question. And it's one that I, I still am researching. Uh, they didn't have any idea that this would happen. And I, I, if you look at the photos, you're struck by the fact of how close to the sea level this particular lighthouse is. The original one, of course, was only a few yards away from uh, the, the um, reinforced concrete one that was built in 1940. Uh, I did speak to a man named uh, Jack D'Agostino. Uh, above the lighthouse, there was a cliff, and on the cliff was a direction finding station with about 15 or 20 uh, Coast Guardsmen, all of whom survived. When the tsunami hit their building, it was only five feet high. It caused a little structural damage, but nobody was injured. And this man told me that um, he thought the reason that the lighthouse was located down low was two reasons. One, uh, it was easy to move the uh, frontal lens from the old lighthouse uh, over to the new one. I've seen pictures of this happening in other lighthouses where, especially in Alaska, where the new lighthouse simply took the old uh, lenses but also he said that, that if it was up on the cliff, it wouldn't have the, the light wouldn't have the power to get across Unimac Pass, the nine mile pass, as it did when it was lower to sea level. That was his theory of that. And um, it's an area that I'm still, I'm still researching and still exploring as to why it was located there. Hmm. Interesting. You, usually the higher the light, the, the farther the 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 light would travel. So. I I thought so too, um, but that was his two cents on it. So um, you know, that's his opinion on it. Okay, well, I'm not sure about that, but <laughs> anyway. So uh, there were five coast guardsmen stationed at the lighthouse at the time of the tsunami, which uh, seems like a, a, a larger than normal crew at a, a light station of that time. Do you, I have a two-part question for you. Do you know why there were five men stationed there and what were their duties, which would account for, for why they, they had five men there? Yeah, this is, a, this is another really good question uh, about the number of men there because it seemed to have varied over time. In the original old octagonal wood lighthouse, there were three keepers there. Uh, this uh, reinforced concrete one had as many as 10 men in the early 1940s that were stationed there. It dropped from 10 men to seven men in uh, 1945. And then right before the tsunami came, uh, two men left and there were five men there when it hit. So it's hard to, um, for me to get the answer on this. And if, if any of your listeners know, I'd sure appreciate uh, them contacting me. One, one guess is, they may have overstaffed it due to the war efforts. Because it was on Unimic Pass, there were a lot of ships transiting through there. There were US ships, Russian ships, as well as Japanese, potentially Japanese submarines. So they wanted to have a lot of men manning the radio and on watch. And then as the war wound down, they uh, went from 10 to seven and then to five. And uh, ironically, uh, two of the five men that were there that died were ready to be um, transferred off of the island. They had spent three years in the military and their time was come to leave. But why they were still there is kind of a mystery. Uh, the only answer I think is that it's, Unimac is extremely remote. 
And uh, it's very, very hard to land ships there because the surf is so rough. In fact, men have died in the surf loading and unloading boats there. So I think they were just waiting to be released. And fortunately, they didn't make it off in time. Speaking about the uh, duties of the men of Scotch Cap, uh, they mainly consisted of, of cleaning and maintaining the third order phrenal lens and the diaphone foghorn system, uh, plus keeping the rest of the light station in good condition. You have to remember that uh, Alaska weather is very capricious, and in the illusions, it's especially bad. It's not unusual to see 100 knot winds, they're called willowaws, uh, plus uh, lots of rain, snow, and fog. So I'm sure that maintenance was a, was a full-time job. They also had to man the radios with other uh, Navy bases and Coast Guard men at Dutch Harbor and around Alaska, as well as monitor the ships that were transiting uh, Udemac Pass. Of course, it wasn't all work there. The men had plenty of time to uh, hunt and fish. Uh, several of them were photographers. They had their own labs. They would shoot and develop their own pictures. And uh, also, they played lots and lots and lots of poker. Okay. So you just touched on the, the weather, the severe weather there. And one of the things you mentioned is fog. Fog is, is frequent in the area, correct? That's absolutely true. Yeah. yeah. And I'm just wondering if, if kind of low-lying fog is pretty common. And backing up to we're talking about the lighthouse being on higher ground rather than the, I mean, I'm sorry, on lower ground rather than the higher ground uh, where the uh, direction finding station was direction finding cliff. station. Yeah. What, you know, wondering why the lighthouse wasn't on higher ground with that. Is it possible that it would have been uh, covered in fog more of the time if it was on higher ground? Very much so. That's a, that's a really excellent point, I think. And that may be the reason as to why they, they preferred that, uh, that plus the ease of moving that the uh, lens across to the new structure this was looked like phil to me so um you know i think there were several reasons but you make a good point about uh there was lots of fog in the area and it was a very dense fog so maybe keeping it low like that was the best way to go too yeah i know there were some stations uh in other places like in california where stations had to be rebuilt on lower ground when they were originally on higher ground and were lost in the fog much of the time so interesting interesting point yeah i'm just wondering if that could be could be a reason for that Mm -hmm. so getting back to the uh the coast guardsmen who were stationed there at the the time of the tsunami chief bosun mate uh anthony pettit was the uh the officer in charge i'm his name was uh anthony pettit p-e-t-i-t is it pronounced pettit did he No, uh, a good point Uh, actually uh, i was corrected by one of his descendants it's because he's french canadian petit oh petit okay okay I was kind of anglicizing it uh, to kind of uh, (laughs) shouldn't make assumptions about that. So Anthony Petit was the officer in charge and he had been assigned there in the previous year. Uh, What can you tell me about uh, Anthony Petit? Well, he was, as I said, a French Canadian. His family was from Quebec. He was a lifer. He had been in the life-saving service and Coast Guard for about 22 years before he got to Scotchcap. And he was as tough as whipcord, a really tough guy. He was uh, stationed all over the Great Lakes at first and, and was at Plum Island, uh, Two Rivers, Kiwani, Chicago, Whitefish Point, and other places. And as I said, he began his career in the life-saving service and he's credited with saving at least two lives. Uh, one of them was pretty spectacular. When he was in Chicago, 
on the dock there, uh, there was a five-year-old boy in a truck. They were delivering uh, goods to the, to the uh, station. And the boy uh, disconnected the handbrake and the truck started heading toward the end of the dock. And Patti saw this and raced over the truck and went in and grabbed the boy just as the truck was going over. He grabbed him by his shoe collar and pulled him out of the truck and saved his life. He was a no-nonsense chief bosun's mate. And there was no doubt whatsoever who was in charge at Scotch Cap Light when he was there. Before we talked today, I, I kind of scoured the internet for information, and I found virtually nothing about the other four men who died in the disaster. What have you been able to find out about the other four men? Well, quite a bit, actually. I've been able to find out things from historical societies and from family members. Uh, the other four men were um, Seaman First Class Dewey Dykstra, Seaman First Class Paul Ness, Motor Machinist Second Class Leonard Pickering, and Fireman First Class Jack Colvin. Uh, two of them, Dykstra and Ness, were sons of first-generation immigrants. Uh, Dewey Dykstra's uh, parents immigrated from Holland, which is now the Netherlands, and uh, he grew up on, a, on farms in Iowa and Minnesota. In fact, uh, Dykstra was the only one of the five who saw actual combat experience. He served on a, a patrol frigate in World War II and was active in the Battle of the Lady Gulf in the Philippines in October 1944. That was the battle, the first battle in which the U.S. encountered kamikaze planes, and his ship was attacked by kamikaze. So he saw duty there. Paul Ness's father, Henry Ness, was a, a well-known uh, minister in the Northwest. He had a newspaper column, he had radio shows, and uh, he even founded uh, Northwest College, uh, which is still uh, going strong in the Seattle area, I believe. Uh, Leonard Pickering's father was a railroad man. He worked on the Cotton Belt uh, Railroad in Arkansas, as did his son, Leonard. And then uh, Jack Colvin was born and raised in Klamath Falls, Oregon. And he had a, a tragic experience early in his life. His uh, brother uh, died when he went through the ice, ice skating and drowned when Jack was a young boy. Wow. So you found quite a bit. And part of that was uh, through descendants and relatives of these? Yes, uh, tracking, down, tracking down descendants. Uh, it's, a, it's a case, in doing this, it's a case of persistence and patience. Um, as I've been called a historical sleuth by, by some people because I like to find out things and, and, and see what makes these people tick. And going through descendants, going through historical societies and records is, is the best way to do it. And that's how I've been able to find out a lot about these uh, five men, actually. And uh, you said you call yourself a historical sleuth. Can you describe a, a bit more about the, the research you've done, where and how you've done this research? You have to be a detective. You know, it can be some, the internet is our friend, and it can be as easy as looking through a, a online white pages for people with the last name. Obviously, the, the sons have the, the correct last name. The daughters, if they got married, no longer have the name. But it's, a, it's an arduous process, and um, it's, a, it's a little bit like here in um, Columbus, of course, is where the Ohio State, the Buckeyes play, and they have a big stadium that seats 110,000 people. And if I think about all of those seats, each of them have to be filled with a word, it's overwhelming. But if I look at a row at a time or a section at a time, it's much makes it much more amenable to complete the task, the research task. 
Well, it's great that you're doing this because uh, nobody had done anywhere near as much research on this uh, on this subject before you. Is that is that a correct true. statement? I was spurred by a by a, an account uh, in which the uh, reporter said that the information on the other on the other, on the five men was scant, and um, there's always information on everybody. It's just a matter of refining it. It's like the X Files, right? I mean, the truth is out there. Right. It's just a matter of of digging it out and uncovering it. Yeah, I'm sure the families are really happy about this. They are very pleased uh, because uh, uh, their uh, their relatives gave their lives in service of the country, and uh, it's long ago forgotten. Uh, Unimac is a, has been called a forgotten island, and with good reason. Even though it's the closest to the Alaskan mainland and the largest island in the Aleutian chain, uh, it's virtually uninhabited. It's a national wildlife refuge now, with bears, caribou, and wolves uh, wandering around with foxes too, so so they're thrilled that somebody is 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 telling the story of their uh, descendants. Mm-hmm. And Unimac is one of the largest islands in the United States. Correct? That's true. That's true. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. So, what has been the most surprising thing you found in the course of your research? Uh, yes, uh, twists and turns. Twists and turns. Um, there are several different surprises. One of them, which I I didn't really think about until later was the fact that this occurred early in the morning of April 1st, 1946. Now the US military is well known for pulling all kinds of April Fool's pranks. And many people thought that this was one of them. In fact, a radio man on ADAC way out on the chain got a report about the tsunami and thought it was an April Fool's joke, uh, stuffed it in his pocket and just went to a basketball game. And later he told his commanding officer that it was an April Fool. Everybody knows that it was April 1st, and he took it as an April Fool's joke. In fact, so many people thought that that there was an April Fool's joke that the uh, military didn't believe it. And they decided to send a plane the day after when it was daylight. And the plane flew over, actually it was the morning of April 1st. And then they saw for themselves that, of course, the lighthouse didn't exist anymore. It was actually true. The second thing is was the remains of the of the five men were buried three separate times. They were first buried at Scotch Cap and then taken to the uh, post cemetery on ADAC. And then they were taken to a military cemetery at Fort McPherson in Maxwell, Nebraska. Uh, Paul Ness's body was the only uh, body that was recognizable. And his was also buried three times. The third time was at the family plot in Seattle, Washington. The uh, the Coast Guard named one of their buoy tenders after Anthony Petit. Uh, are there any other memorials uh, to the men who died in the tsunami, uh, either at Scotch Cap or anywhere else? The only uh, memorial that I know of is a plaque that was installed on the wall of the lighthouse ruins in the 1960s. The plaque reads, near this site, Scotch Cap light station was destroyed by a seismic sea wave on 1 April 1946. This tablet is in memory of Anthony Lawrence Petit, Jack Colvin, Paul James Ness, Dewey Dykstra, and Leonard Pickering, who lost their lives in this disaster while serving their country. It seems like there uh, should be something else somewhere, but that's, that's, I'm glad that that's there. Well, the, the buoy tender named uh, for Anthony Petit oh, is sure. a pretty, pretty sure. substantial, substantial right. memorial. That's- you can find pictures of the boy tender on the web, of course, and I'm sure that it'll, it'll service Alaska for many, many years to come.
I just want to mention, this is certainly one of the, in terms of loss of life, one of the worst lighthouse disasters in American history. The, the only one that I know of uh, that was worse in terms of loss of life was right at the beginning of our lighthouse history in 1718 uh, at Boston Light in Boston Harbor when six people died. Uh, you probably know about that. The first mm-hmm. keeper of Boston Light, George Worthy Lake. Uh, his wife and daughter, along with three other people, including a, a slave uh, named Shadwell, who was paddling the canoe from a, a larger vessel back to the, the lighthouse, and two other people. Six people died in that disaster. And I think that's, uh, in terms of loss of life, the, the, the worst in American history. And I think Scotch Cap would be next. But do you know of any others that, that rank with those? No, I don't, I don't think so. Um, I have... I have read, and I should point out too, that the, the U.S. Uh, Lighthouse Society has been very, very helpful and instrumental to me in my research efforts, in particular the Keeper's Log, with not only uh, the articles on Scotch Camp, but the lighthouses and the life of the keepers in general. I mean, the, the color that, that the uh, organization has is really amazing, and I, I find it a font of information. Uh, but no, I haven't, I haven't heard of... Uh, uh, any other other tragedies of this magnitude regarding lighthouses. So when I heard that you were working on this this book, I was extremely extremely pleased because it's a very worthy subject, and uh, I'm just extremely happy, and I'm really looking forward to this book. Do you have a, a time frame in mind? Uh, it's, uh, it sounds like it's it'll be finished when it's finished. Yeah, <laughs> I, that's really true. Yeah. Uh, the last the last book that involved research uh, like this was the was my second book took six years and this will probably be in that ballpark I'm I'm uh, two and a half years now so I've I've got some more research to do on these questions that you brought up uh, I still don't know uh, a really good answer for those so I have to research that and and always find out more about the men and what they did up into the Scotch cap and where they were and. and whether they had a motorcycle, one man was a motorcycle freak. He loved motorcycles and boats. One liked automobile engines. He liked to tinker with engines. So this is part of the fabric. Mm-hmm. And that's what I enjoy uh, researching. Well, again, it's an extremely worthy project. It's, a, it's just so great to hear that you're so as into it, as deeply into it as you are, that you've put so much time and that you will continue to put so much time into it. So Congratulations on what you've accomplished and uh, keep up the good work. And it's, it's a wonderful talking to you today, Peter. Thanks for spending some time with me. Thank you, Jeremy. And thanks again for having me. As I said in my interview with Peter Kaufman, I'm glad he's writing a book on the Scotch Cap Lighthouse disaster and that he's putting so much careful research into it. The book will serve as another memorial to those five men who died at the light station when the tsunami struck in 1946. We want to thank all of our faithful listeners. Since this podcast started in June 2019, it's had about 30,000 downloads with listeners in every U.S. state and 72 foreign countries. We love hearing from you. If you have comments or ideas about the podcast, please email jeremy at uslhs.org. Also, if you listen using Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the podcast. Getting more ratings and reviews helps us get more attention. And please tell your friends and share links to this podcast on social media. I'm gonna let it shine. 
As always, many thanks to the members, volunteers, and staff of the United States Lighthouse Society, its chapters and affiliates in Hansville, Washington, and everywhere. Go to uslhs.org to learn more about all the great things the Society offers. And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting it by becoming a member or by making a donation. Thanks to everyone, everywhere in the world, who works to save history of every kind. What you do is so important to all of us. Keep up the good work. And as always, thanks so much for listening and keep a good light. I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine.